Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. One of many scriptures on the subject of discipleship. Tonight I want to begin a series of messages simply on the subject, follow me. You may be seated. And I hope you know that those are the words of Jesus, not the words of Daryl Johns. Although I would like to be able to say, as the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I was raised in a Bible-believing church. I was born on a Monday and went to church the following Sunday. I never missed a Sunday, I think for about seven years, and that's to the credit of my mom and dad. My parents took me to a church that uh, had godliness and power. They had not just a form of godliness. My parents, grandparents, and Most of my family members were oneness, Pentecostal people. They were apostolic in power and practice. And I saw genuine faith demonstrated daily by the significant people in my life. I thank God that I was raised around people who had perfected holiness in the fear of God, which meant they had inward and outward holiness. They didn't have one without the other. And the Bible the Holy Ghost, and the people around me all work together to kind of create in me a desire to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, It was a good church, and for the most part, I was a fairly good kid. But I was still a sinner, lost in my sins. Uh, At the age of eight years old, I had not yet robbed banks, and never did, by the way, and I probably was not steeped in the kind of sin that might kind of depict some people who come to God, but I was still lost because I knew I needed a Savior. Like Timothy, I knew the Holy Scriptures that were able to make me wise to salvation. And when I was eight years old, I obeyed the Bible plan of salvation to become a Christian. And just to be clear, when I was eight years old, I did not merely accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now I know that that is the language that is used in many churches this day, these days, but that terminology is really not found in the Bible. I'm not saying that people who say those things are insincere, but they would certainly be inaccurate in describing what it is like to be saved. It is important, it's very important, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is biblical. But in the context of the Bible, that was believe on Jesus as opposed to many gods or no God. So when we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 16, and you'll be saved, we're talking about turning your faith toward the person of Jesus Christ as the sole means of your salvation. That's what belief means. It doesn't mean mere mental assent. It doesn't mean just by believing that you're saved because the Bible said that the devil believes that there's one God and he trembles at that knowledge. 
the knowledge that there is one Lord will not save you, but it will put you in a place to be saved. Amen. So I just want to explain that I obeyed what we teach from the Bible, the concise plan of salvation in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, and I'd like for you to notice these words in the King James because we frequently misquote what should be the most often quoted scripture among oneness Pentecostals. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, at eight years old, I repented of my sins. I made a change of heart, mind, and life direction away from sin and toward God. To repent is to confess and to forsake your sins. Godly sorrow is not equal to repentance. The Bible said that godly sorrow leads to repentance. But I've known a lot of people who were sorry they were caught, sorry their life was a mess, but they never turned from their sins. So to repent is to turn from sin to God. It literally means in the Bible a change of mind. Metanoia is the original word. It means a change of mind. Amen. It would be fair to say that repentance is a death to self in the same way that Jesus died on the cross. When you repent of your sins, you're really dying to sin, to self-will, You're turning your life over to Jesus Christ. Now, I received the Holy Ghost before I was baptized, but in Acts 2.38, we know the order is to be baptized. Baptism is burial with Christ. Amen? We are buried with Him by baptism into death. That's what baptism is. It is for the remission of sins. It is not joining a church. It is not an outward sign of an inward grace. The Bible is very clear to say that water baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ is for the remission of sins and it is essential to salvation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Amen. So if you've already received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you're instructed and indeed commanded to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I was not afraid of the water, but I was awkward about baptism. So it was a little while after I received the Holy Ghost, but I think I was still eight years old. Now initially, when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it would be proper theologically to say that you were baptized in the Holy Ghost. You know, John the Baptist said that I indeed baptize you with water. There's one coming after me that's mightier than I I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose the shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So our initiation into the kingdom of God comes with being baptized in the Holy Ghost. And when you receive the Holy Ghost, you are in Christ. And Romans 8 tells us that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. Now the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is not a third person in a fictitious Godhead. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a part of the same spirit 
that moved on the face of the waters and said, let there be light. It is the only spirit that God has. God is a spirit. Amen. And when he fills you with the Holy Ghost, he imparts to you his spirit. Amen. Eight years old, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost and spoke in a language that I never learned. No one taught me what to say. Nobody said, say hallelujah 47 times real fast and you'll get the Holy Ghost. I do believe that words may come to your mind or to your mouth and there may be phrases that you want to say that you don't understand and you have to kind of speak it out boldly. But the Bible said the Spirit gives you the utterance, the ability to speak. You don't have to generate it, but you have to turn it loose. Amen? And let it happen. Amen. Now, when I was praying to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, eight years old and all of my deceitfulness and wickedness, I wanted the Holy Ghost so badly, I was hungry for God. Maybe it's part of my personality, but I was really working hard at receiving the Holy Ghost. I was trying to wrestle it out of the arms of God, I guess. And someone kind of told me something like, you know, if you'll just relax and quit trying to get the Holy Ghost and just receive the Holy Ghost, you'll receive it. And I remember that night, I believe it was a Sunday night, but I remember the place in our church, it would have been on the right-hand side at a wooden altar there. And I had prayed. I started out in one place, and I just, eight-year-old boy, wiggled my way down to the other end of the altar and didn't know I was there. But I remember vividly when I received the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues for the very first time, I knew I had the Holy Ghost. I knew I was speaking in other tongues. Nobody had to tell me what it was, although for some people they need to have it clarified to them. There's no doctrine that says you can't tell a person that speaking in tongues is the Holy Ghost and help them walk through what just happened to them. But I knew I had the Holy Ghost. I knew before I got it, I knew when I received it, and I knew after I had it that that was it. That was the gift of God. Amen. It was an amazing experience for me. Praise God. And I learned, though, that when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, we don't need to pray to the Holy Ghost. We know that when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, that if you ask anything in my name, amen, I'll do it. That when I pray to Jesus, I'm praying to God Almighty, God in flesh, God ascended, God that came back by His Spirit, and I can pray in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm not ever confused about whether I should pray to the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, for I know that the name of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that all that you ask, do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I think it's very important that we know who God is, that we know how to pray, that we're, when we're praying with people, that they're not receiving a mysterious spirit separate from the person of Jesus Christ. They're praying that Jesus would come and fill them. And when they receive His Spirit, we define it as the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. But it is Jesus in spirit form that is coming to their life. Don't make it something separate than Jesus. 
Amen. Jesus is coming. Colossians 127, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you, that which was hidden in the past, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. The hope of glory. Eight years old and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I thank God for that experience. And I want to say something to all of our wonderful parents and grandparents and guardians. I've heard people say, well, I don't want, I don't want to push my child. I don't, I don't want them to receive the Holy Ghost too young. Well, you can't give them the Holy Ghost. They can't make God give them the Holy Ghost. And if he gives them the Holy Ghost and they speak in other tongues, it's the real deal. And he must have known they were ready for it and they had faith for it. Ryan was uh, seven, Joel was eight, Justin was five, five years old, when they all received the gift of the Holy Ghost. The youngest child that I've ever witnessed receive the Holy Ghost was Sarah Turner, three years old. I think she was sitting about right over here, and she spoke in tongues for a long, long time, three years old. Now, I can't explain how a three-year-old received the Holy Ghost, but I saw it happen, and I'm not God, and neither are you. Don't worry about them receiving the Holy Ghost too young. I know adults who receive the Holy Ghost that don't appreciate it, don't walk in it, don't obey the Lord in their life. Amen. It can grow up with them. You have to continually update your walk with God. That experience of the Holy Ghost, whether you're 3 or 33 or 103 when you receive it, that's not the end of it all. It's the start of it all. You're born again of water and spirit. So don't hold your children back. Now, in a practical way, I don't like to baptize a young child until they have received the Holy Ghost. Because I believe when God says that they've received the Holy Ghost, you remember the Gentiles received the Holy Ghost, and Peter said, who was I to withstand God, that he had given them the Holy Ghost, the like experience that we received on the day of Pentecost. So now that we know they had the Holy Ghost, God had honored them with the Spirit, so we wouldn't withhold baptism. And with a younger child, that's the way I feel. But I really defer to parents. Uh, but you can take a picture and remind them of what happened that day. Sometimes as a, a person grows up through childhood and their teenage years, they may not have a vivid memory, but I was eight and I have a vivid memory of being baptized in Jesus' name. Where it was, I, I have a vivid memory of that and I was only eight years old. And I don't even think we have a picture of it, but I don't know why. I really am not that old. There was photography when I was baptized. I think. <clears throat> anyway, I mean, if a child receives the Holy Ghost, then I would baptize them. Or, you know, I, I, I put an age in my notes and took it out because I think it's too soft to try to say, pick an age. And now Brother John said this is the age that we just baptize a child because we think they're ready. 
when they know they need to be baptized, when they understand the scripture, when they've received the gift of the Holy Ghost, I say baptize them in Jesus' name and don't hold them back from that. I'm saying this to just kind of underscore this new birth experience of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We know how it starts. Amen? It starts with this wonderful experience of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if you read Romans chapter 6, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 6, when the writer of Hebrews is going through the foundational truths, he says it is repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and then baptisms. Baptism in water, baptism in spirit, that initiates us in the kingdom of God. That's the salvation experience in the Bible. Now, if you would have been watching me the night I received the Holy Ghost, you would say that it was quite an experience. It left an indelible mark on me. I've never forgotten that night. But the word experience would accurately describe what you could see happening as an observer. And I would have to say that from the time I was about eight years old until I was about 16 years of old, for the next eight years of my life, the word experience would describe what I had. I had an experience that I kind of updated every Sunday or at youth camps or in special services And I've known people like that that have an experience with Jesus Christ and they kind of run into him occasionally. But I think it's very important that when we're talking about salvation that we don't really focus on the experience but that we focus on the relationship. Being saved, because it happens in a a period of time, we could say that was an experience, an encounter with God. But what happened in me was not an experience. It was the beginning of a relationship that God intended to last from that day till my last day and to the unending day of eternity. That's what He put inside of me. And that's what he put inside of you. But we Pentecostals, we have our challenges. We are experience oriented. We believe that he inhabits the praises of his people. We believe that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst and he shows up when we gather and begin to worship him and we believe in the manifest presence and power of God that whatever he did in the days of his flesh, he can do right here tonight that Jesus is present here by the power of the Holy Ghost just as he was in the days of his flesh. Jesus is here, amen where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We believe that. Well, because we believe that, when we walk out the door and don't feel God, too many 
Pentecostals question God and the relationship isn't really happening. It's just an experience. It happens in the moving of the Holy Ghost. We use that phrase, the moving of the Spirit. Where did it move? It moved on our hearts. Moved in the congregation. Just a figure of speech to describe that. We believe in all of that taking place. And the Bible tells us we should. That praise is pleasant. That it's comely and present, pleasant to praise the Lord. So it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to experience the presence and the power of God. Discipleship does not diminish spiritual experiences, but it does balance them and undergird them, undergirds them, and it supports them. In all of my years of being in church, I have never seen one person not be blown away by receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. There is no such thing as a good dose or a bad dose of the Holy Ghost. You got a good dose. Well, what is that? We say some crazy things. Now, maybe they really let the Holy Ghost have them and somebody kind of stopped it. I recently attended the funeral of Sister Loretta Bernard as a young girl raised in a very traditional church. She received the gift of the Holy Ghost and she spoke in tongues for three solid hours. Now, did she get a higher grade Holy Ghost than you? No. God doesn't have grade A, grade B, and grade C Holy Ghost. His spirit is the same. I don't want to say it like this, but he might have grade A, grade B, and grade C saints. Or something like that, you understand. He does have 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold saints. Okay. Experiences are wonderful. And you've heard me tell a little bit of my story before, and I'm not really just trying to tell my story tonight. I'm trying to relate a truth. When I was 16 years old, I was minding my own business at a youth camp, Florida District, Ocala, same campgrounds, much upgraded, I must say. And the preacher that week just had my number. He was preaching to me, 16-year-old, driver's license, you know, working a job. He had my number. And he was preaching about living for God and that, that we are like coins in the hand of God. And what right does the coin have to say to him that owns it, spin me this way? Wow, he shook me. And I had a tremendous youth camp experience When I went home, I was deeply changed. I I found myself piling up in the altar about right here, every service, bawling my eyes out, broken before God, praying. In retrospect, I think God was calling me to himself. He wasn't calling me to preach. 
He was calling me out of an experience-oriented uh, situation. I don't know how to say that. Into a relationship. And for several weeks, I was digging in and I made some decisions to change the way I spent my time and pray and read my Bible and subdue my flesh by fasting a day a week. I was challenged by that preacher and a pastor in our district at that camp to get involved in ministry in our local church. So I went back home and I was already in the choir and played in our church orchestra. But I went back home and I got involved through my pastor's permission teaching Sunday school and later bus ministry and wherever I could raise my hand and say, Jesus, I love you and I want you to use me somewhere in your kingdom. It was a season of deep spiritual shaping of my life brokenness, consecration. And in that season, the next couple years, there were deep convictions that the Lord put in my heart that I live by to this day. They are personal convictions based on principles of the Bible that I have applied to my life personally and I will live them whatever the cost because God birthed them in me. Whenever I am trying to clear away the clutter of my life and all the responsibilities that the Lord has given me and get back to just being a good Christian, I remind myself of that 16-year-old boy who loved God without any agenda or weight on my shoulders and it reminds me that every time I see a child or a teenager, that they can cultivate a walk with God and we should invite them to and challenge them to and not give them their teenage years off expecting them to miraculously come to God when they graduate from college. And I've met many teenagers that live for God much more faithfully than me. I'm not saying that to try to put myself up as the epitome of a disciple. I'm trying to make a point, as I said, that there is a difference between viewing salvation as an experience versus seeing it as a relationship. I've experienced the difference between running into Jesus once a week and walking with him every day. I shouldn't really say this, but Sunday I stepped over to our pastor of discipleship, Brother Jury, as the Holy Ghost was moving. And I said, Brother Jury, so many people in our church that struggle spiritually, struggle because of a lack of discipleship, of a daily walk with God. But it's in my notes. They're Christians, but they continually struggle spiritually. There's a common denominator. It's called an experience-oriented religion 
versus a discipleship-oriented relationship. And you can work for God and be lost, but you can't walk with God and be lost. You can be lost coming to church every time the doors open, but you can't be lost walking with Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The difference is relationship. Discipleship is a relationship. Give me a person who lives by Luke 9.23 and similar passages of Scripture And I will show you a person who leads an overcoming life. Christians who live from crisis to crisis. From experience to experience. Struggle. They struggle. They struggle primarily for a lack of a fundamental obedience, daily, hourly, moment-by-moment obedience to the Bible and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They struggle. They are like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But they miss this part. Nevertheless, not my will, but time be done. Because when you lose that wrestling match prayer meeting and you walk away with your will prevailing, you have entered entered into a vicious cycle of spiritual struggle and defeat. And pardon me because I feel this, Because I'm a pastor for 21 years and 38 years of ministry. And I see people that could be victorious, but struggle. Let's dissect Luke 9.23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There are quite a few follow me passages in the Bible and the words of Jesus. And when I was working on my pastor's pen article at the beginning, at the end of, in in the middle of September, came out the last week of September for the month of October. I tried to go through every follow, follow me, followed scripture in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, Revelation, wherever I could find that. And I tried to chase them down because I wanted to to look at this fresh and do my homework in discipleship. But I choose Luke 9.23 Because it is here that Jesus specifically says daily, daily. You carefully consider the words of Jesus. You can see that there are several aspects to discipleship. First of all, it is a call 
to all, if any man will come after me. Now I know he's saying that if you want to come, you can, but when you come, you must deny yourself. We'll get to there in a minute. But I think it's very important that everybody that's watching or listening in the room knows that there's no good and bad experiences with God in the Holy Ghost and that everything that happens in our life is up to what we do with what he did for us. Follow me? What he did on the cross, what he said in his word, what he birthed in our hearts. Everybody has the same Holy Ghost. Now maybe you had a, an upbringing that was more conducive to being godly and you don't have so much stuff to wade through every day from your past or mental battles and abuses. Not everybody has the same life experiences and I, I, want, to, I want to acknowledge that, that we don't come to God as a kind of a clean sheet of paper and he just writes his law in our hearts. He does write his law in our hearts, but we have a life history with which to cope and deal with and to change. But I will take scripture over opinions every day. And the Bible said that if any man, any person is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation a new creature. All things are passed away and all things are become new. We believe in the change that takes place when you receive the Holy Ghost, that you are born again. You are born from above, that you have a power working in you to overcome every obstacle, every predisposition that you may have in your life. So no matter what you bring to the table, what he brings to the table is more powerful and his word and his spirit can make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is for everyone. And it works. For everyone. In the book of 1 Samuel, I think chapter 7, when he's writing to Israel, and this is just kind of extemporaneously said, if you do return to the Lord, if you want to turn to God, then he said, you know, put away your idols. Then he says these words, and prepare your heart to the Lord. So I've got this heart, you know, it's, Deceitful, wicked above, you know, desperately wicked above all things who can know it. Everybody has a, can have an evil heart, but my heart can be changed. My heart can be prepared for the things of God. And that's kind of the same idea in the Old Testament. Discipleship was never intended by Jesus to be some exclusive elite club. Discipleship is for every Believer, And it means that you can follow Jesus if you want to. There is nothing about your life that he cannot change so that you can follow him. It's for any man or woman. Luke 9, 23. 
If any man follow me, let him deny himself. Uh Uh-oh. Now we're headed for trouble. Because discipleship is the call to self-denial. Now I know that salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. But if you read the passages on discipleship, discipleship will cost you everything to gain everything better. But it will cost you. Jesus said, let him deny himself. So the call to follow me that Jesus gave us is a call to quit following whatever else you've been following. If your career has been paramount, then subordinate it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you've been primarily seeking success, now seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He becomes your father and your friend. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. Now Jesus elaborates on this idea of self-denial in verse 24. I'll come back to the rest of 23. But look at 924. He's talking about self-denial. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life shall, for my sake, the same shall save it. This is a paradox. You save yourself by losing yourself. You discover yourself by denying yourself. Self-actualization, Abraham Maslow, is a myth. You can't be self-actualized. We are complete in Christ, Paul said. Not in ourselves. You're always going to be a deficit person in yourself. Everybody. So you can't successfully self-direct your life. I love what Jeremiah 10.23 says, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You say, hey, wait, you don't know my IQ. I'm so smart, I can direct my own steps. Yeah, but you don't know, I've got this instinct about me. I know what to do and where to go. No, it is not in you to direct your steps. But the Lord will order your steps if you will follow Him. Amen. Amen. Every person that's on a self-guided journey is like a compass on a GPS that has not been calibrated and you will wander your life in circles. That's why people who say they are Christians continually battle cycles of defeat because they have not calibrated their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to obedience to His Word. And believe it or not, it was January 2012 when I preached the message, Calibrate. You are not astute enough, neither am I, to chart my own course in life. It's necessary for you to deny yourself to follow Jesus. And the secret of following Jesus is deny yourself so then you can discover yourself. I mean, really, my life plans are so lame. You know, if I look back at 16 through 18, 
high school years, my life plans were so lame compared to the great adventure that God had in store for me. But I had to deny myself, die to my plans, and let God's plans be birthed in me so that I could discover what the Lord had for me. It wasn't a worse life. It was a better life. Amen. Deny yourself. And then Jesus said, you've got to do something else. You have to take up your cross. That's that dirty word that nobody likes. It's that S word called submission. Now, in that day, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. They didn't really grasp that he would die on a cross. But he talks about a cross. Because his audience knew the use of crosses. Started by Phoenicians, adopted and perfected by the Romans. The most cruel form of capital punishment. It was a place to die. Isn't this a beautiful truth about Christianity? It's a place to die. Cross-bearing, powerful image. In the middle of it is rejection. That's what it was all about. The cross-bearer had committed a crime so severe that he needed to be put to death. And they often carried their crosses to the own place of execution We know Jesus carried at least the patibulum, the crossbeam of his cross and and fell on the way and Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry his cross. But Jesus said that if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, daily we'll get there, and follow me. Take up your cross. Going where Jesus went with his cross. Following Jesus means going to some very uncomfortable places. Remember the disciples followed him into a ship and the ship got in a storm. And sometimes you think something went wrong with your relationship with God because you're following him and all of a sudden you followed him into a storm. The better to be in a storm with Jesus than in the calm alone. Amen. This is something that I have repeated often for 21 years. But the cross is the test of complete obedience to the will of God. My cross may be different than yours, but it means the same thing, death to Daryl John's. That's what my cross is. It means death to self-will. It means losing myself. So I can save myself. It means losing myself, denying my will, so God's superior, better will can be birthed in me. Amen. Jesus talked about this when he said, Except a a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides alone. That's where many people are. They are so afraid of that death that they miss a resurrection. They're so afraid and they don't trust God's word 
or his will, so they hang on to self-will. And Jesus said, if you, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you'll save it. The kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies. It brings forth much fruit. It's the process of discipleship. And then Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Would you just please say daily? Daily. Daily. Now, you cannot follow Jesus from spiritual experience to spiritual experience. That's not the way to follow him. Do you remember, do you remember the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration? He's there. Jesus' face glows before them. Moses and Elijah appear before them. And Simon Peter pipes up and says, Hey, let's build three tabernacles. Why don't we just stay right here up on this mountain of glory? Have you ever been there? I mean, Wednesday night a few weeks ago was like that to me. It just you didn't want to leave church. I've been in some special experiences with God that were so amazing that you really didn't want to walk out the door because you just wanted to hold on to what you were feeling as long as possible, that glory of God. Amen. It's natural to want to three, build three tabernacles and just stay there. Caught up in that moment so you don't want to leave. That's what heaven will be. That much plus much more and you never have to go home because you are home. Now discipleship does have ties of incredible spiritual experiences but discipleship always also has times of praying when you don't feel like praying and you don't feel God at all. Discipleship does mean being obedient to forgive when you really want to retaliate. Discipleship does not take a day off. Discipleship means daily. So Monday's discipleship assignment goes like this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. That's Monday. And then on Tuesday, guess what it is? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. It gets better on Wednesday. On Wednesday, it's deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. You already know what Thursday and Friday's like. It's the same thing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. But Saturday's coming, and you know that many people, for them, Saturday is a day off. So do whatever you want to do Saturday. But not to a disciple. It's not drudgery, but it is discipline. It is every day. And I have found 
that the people who have the sweetest spiritual experiences with God are those that have it undergirded with a daily walk with God. When somebody comes into the sanctuary and they're praying and obeying God in their life, that doesn't take them having the choir change keys or have a shout beat for them to get in the presence of God. When they walk into the sanctuary, they've been living in a life of obedience and they just kind of flow into the presence of God. It's not a long trip for them because that's what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday have been. So they don't just run into Jesus once a week. They walk with him every day. Daily. Luke nine twenty three. He said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and... Follow me. Now, this is very important because discipleship really is about following Jesus Christ. How he thinks, how he lived, what he valued, what he despised, following Jesus means daily obedience. And it means following Him all the way to the point of being willing to die for His name. It was interesting when I was studying this passage. I ran across some commentaries that said, you know, back in that day, the threat of death was very real, but not so much anymore. Well, it may be changing. It's certainly been the reality of laying down your life for Jesus Christ through the centuries. And in our culture, in our world, some places around the world today, people are dying for the name of Jesus Christ. I know you know that. This is not a hypothetical situation to try to make you think about loving Jesus a whole lot. It's a reality that following Him means loving Him so much that you love Him more, as He says with His own words, than your own life also. Now I just said that because it was true. But it made me pause as I said those words to ask myself, do I really love Jesus more than I love self-preservation or self-will, self-denial? Do I have faith in God enough to practice self-denial to know that it pays off? Well, following Jesus where he went. You know, the tide of public opinion turned against him and it has turned against the church in some circles and it could get worse. It really could get worse. Now, some people followed Jesus for the benefits. The Bible said that they followed him 
because of the miracles in John 6. Some people follow Jesus from afar off as Simon Peter did in Pilate's judgment hall. And some people follow him till they get offended by some truth that they don't like. And then they go back and walk with him no more as they did in John 6, 66. But Jesus said, and here it is again on the screens, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When you look at this very honestly, it's pretty clear to understand, and this is my main theme for tonight, that discipleship is about relationship. It is not just about joining a religion. Because frankly, religion is very boring. But relationship is full of life. Amen? Religion will let you down, but Jesus will never let you down. Church, church, local churches are messy. They're filled with people like you and me. Imperfect, inconsistent at times, sometimes hypocritical, and people get turned off in the church. But if you're following Jesus, it doesn't make a difference. Because I'm not following you. I'm not in it because I'm united Pentecostal. I'm in it because I made up my mind that I love Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of my life. And I will follow him wherever he leads. Amen. I will skip an entire section about relationships. And I may come back to this, but I want to just say that relationships really matter to God. We have a lot of teaching in the Bible about the relationship between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between Christians and civil authority, between servants and masters. There's a lot in the Bible about relationships. So much so that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you go to church and you're going to offer your gift on the altar and just as you're about to do that, you remember that you're, out of, you're in a bad relationship with a fellow brother or sister. He says, brother, he said, leave your gift at the altar. First, go your way and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer that gift because he said, I want you to know that religion is about relationship. And if you're going to be right with me, you've got to work on relationships with other people too because that's important to God. Would you please stand? I think it would be best to kind of pause here and not try to ruin something very important to talk about. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you that your word is forever settled in heaven. It is full, Lord God, of amazing insight and understanding. We have come tonight, Lord, to discuss what your word says 
about relationships, Lord, and about our responsibility to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, to work in me to be the first partaker of this fruit to practice what I preach. For, Lord, this is much easier to say than it is to do. I ask you, Lord, to help the core of this church that is represented on these midweek Bible studies to model for our new believers, to model for those that are on the fringes true Christianity, discipleship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to come and pray tonight. That we're thinking about what to sing that fits this moment. Brother Brandon and I interacted about that. Why don't you begin gathering if you would? I I am by religious definition a oneness Pentecostal. My doctrine is oneness Pentecostal. My experience is oneness Pentecostal. I love what God is doing around the world through the power of the Holy Ghost. And we were Pentecostal when Pentecostal wasn't cool. We understood the importance of discipline and separation before people realize, oh my goodness, that's what the Bible teaches. This is my faith. It's your faith. But not because of the Bible, but because of maybe what we've done to it. We have our flaws. And one of our flaws is that we historically have been long and heavy on inspiration and short and light on application. One of my friends said, there's a lot of Pentecostals, and I say this in a positive light, that need to make a good Baptist decision because they emphasize making a decision for Christ. I'm not speaking disparagingly. I know a lot of Pentecostals by experiences that need to make more decisions about discipleship. Because that's where Christianity is really experienced and exampled in the world.